Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian, back in sunny Washington, D.C. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Later in the program, a mini roundtable on key takeaways from the Reagan National Defense Forum at the Ronald Reagan Presidential Library and Museum in Simi Valley, California, where we spent an absolutely fascinating weekend. But first, joining us is my good friend Byron Callen of the independent Washington research firm Capital Alpha Partners for a look at the week ahead and whatever else is on his mind on what has been a very busy week. Byron, welcome back to the program. Always a pleasure, Vago. Uh, thanks very much uh, for uh, joining us and for people listening. Normally, Byron comes in rich, dulcet tones. Today, he's joining us by phone uh, because of a technical glitch. So uh, so if it sounds like he sounds a little bit different, that's uh, that's why. Uh, before we get started, uh, Leonardo DRS sponsors our global coverage. Fortress Information Security sponsors our weekly cyber report. And Northrop Grumman supports our cyber coverage overall. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage. Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage uh, and our coverage of the Association of the United States Army's annual meeting uh, and trade show was sponsored by Leonardo DRS and Safran and our coverage of the Halifax International Security Forum and the Reagan Forum were both sponsored by Leonardo DRS and General Atomics Aeronautical Systems. Byron, uh, thanks very much for uh, joining us uh, again. From, from your standpoint as somebody who uh, attended uh, Reagan virtually. What were the key takeaways of listening uh, to what folks have to say? And, and later in the program, we're going to hear from, uh, you know, Dove Zackheim, uh, Michael Herson, and Kathleen McInnes, uh, all uh, part of our uh, regular Washington Roundtable team, uh, as you know, but wanted to get your sense on what jumped out uh, for, for you listening. Well, I think the first was just the general degree of optimism on the National Defense Authorization Act, which goes to the House floor this week. And, you know, bipartisan agreement on the top line. I don't think that was a surprise at all. The $850 billion number that was tossed around was in line with the Senate Armed Services mark of $849 billion. And that's for the broader 050 defense budget function, not just Department of Defense. Um, so, you know, that was one part. I, I guess there was a little bit more um, concern about the omnibus, but at the same time, I thought there's some pretty convincing data put out, particularly by Secretary of the Navy Del Toro, on the impact of a uh, continuing resolution on the Department of Defense, and in his particular case, the Department of the Navy, and what that would do to things like the shipbuilding budget, the broader procurement budget for the Navy, um, operations and maintenance. I mean, it, it really would be a, an ex extremely difficult, extremely challenging environment for the Department of Defense to work through if it's funded through uh, through all of fiscal year 2023 on a continuing resolution. And I know, you know, you talked about it on the Friday show. Um, with with Michael, but I, I just feel strongly that we'll probably find a way to avoid a last minute train wreck, um, and, we'll, and we'll get an FY23 appropriations bill. Uh, that may be more of hope than than reality, but you know I, I think when kind of people sit back and look at the differences between defense and non-defense um, discretionary spending, and some of the other issues that get tied up in this, like the Hyde Amendment, there'll be there'll be a recognition that. You know, level loading the Department of Defense without a lot of anomalies in FY23 is really going to be very damaging to national security, and it sends absolutely the wrong message to our adversaries. 
Uh, well, right. But I mean, the biggest challenge with NDAA, you know, you mentioned, for example, Hyde uh, Amendment and our, our guest tomorrow is going to be DOD Comptroller Mike McCord uh, talking about some of the challenges of a longer term CR, some lessons learned from Ukraine and others. And it's a terrific conversation that I commend the audience to join us for uh, tomorrow uh, because Mike is a very thoughtful uh, guest. Right. But but I mean, there are other challenges as well. You know, COVID restrict. I mean, there are a whole bunch of things that will be yeah. featuring prominently for Republican members, for example, uh, that were featuring less so for uh, a Democratic-controlled uh, upper and lower house. Um, let me... Um, well, if I go, uh, I'll say one other thing, because I thought, you know, there was a bit of optimism, for me at least, unrelated to the Reagan event, but that was the fact that, you know, basically Congress got together and passed legislation to overt a national rail strike. And so, you know, are the same partisan, bipartisan um you know, lineup going to take place here on national defense? I don't know. But I mean, you know, a national rail strike would have been pretty detrimental to the entire U.S. economy. And somehow Congress found a way to come together um, and pass legislation that did so. So, you know, to me, if the House can pass it, even on a partisan vote, and then there's 60 votes in, in the uh, Senate, um, you know, the omnibus and the uh, the National Defense Authorization Act should get done. Uh, uh, indeed. I mean, hope, hopefully. Uh, anything else uh, jumped out at you? Uh, in, well, you mentioned, uh, you know, I think, I think discussions, what, lots of tidbits, right? Yeah, there, there, were, there were an awful lot of little tidbits. But, you know, it, you mentioned Mike McCord. I think some of his comments and some of the other comments on the panel he spoke on about inflation, you know, I think it, it was again reiterated. There are two strong points that I think are worth making again that the Department of Defense does not experience the same degree of inflation that's measured in the consumer price index. But the other thing that I think is important, and um, uh, the, uh, the CEO of, of um, BAE Systems North America made this point that, you know, this business works on long-term contracts. And so there's going to be kind of this delayed impact of cost pressures as the long-term contracts roll off and they have to be renegotiated. You're going to start to see, you know, maybe maybe the top line number that's being reported by CPI does in fact moderate in 2023. But you're going to see the defense industry grapple with these higher material costs, in particular that uh, that that are going to be reflected in the new contracts that they have to negotiate. So um, it's it's an interesting question. Um, I, I think, you know, it is something uh, that the Department of Defense is, and Congress are going to have to grapple with. I don't think there's a clean, simple answer. You know, we're really almost, we're going to be talking about this for the right. FY24 budget, uh, you know, as well as FY23. You mentioned uh, BAE Systems, and I wanted to, uh, wanted to take you to a point that Jim Takelet made, uh, the Lockheed Martin chairman and CEO, uh, regarding, you know, if a recession comes, there is going to be um, a, a challenge, right? A reduction in valuations, more difficulty raising capital. It's not only going to affect the primes, but uh, the sub tiers, second, third, uh, and on uh, down. We talked about it a little bit on yesterday's program. You know, your your sense on that, and and tie that into the department's announcement last week of that trusted, uh, you know, capital program in order to be able to drive innovation and drive it more quickly. I think consensus is that if we do have a recession, it's going to be a relatively mild one. It's not going to be something like the 2008-2009 financial crisis, where there there were real stresses in the economy. I think this is going to be more of a a statistical recession uh, that will show up in numbers, but it's it's not going to you know result in surging unemployment or, or a lot of stresses in different parts of the economy. I do think that. Um, 
<laughs> you know, the, the whole question about capital. Well, wait a second. You know, Lockheed Martin just announced a four billion dollar share buyback. You know, they're, and they're taking debt out. So the primes are really, you know, very well situated from a capital standpoint. And having said that, you know, Jim made the point, you really need to flow capital down. Progress payment rates have to, 100% of those progress payment rates really have to flow down to subcontractors. Um, I don't know, Vago, you know, it's a, it's a really interesting question because I, I think a lot of the smaller companies, you know, the, the mom and pops, the machine shops, um, you know, the small businesses, Maybe they don't have the capital. <laughs> Maybe they also don't have the knowledge or the willpower um, to to kind of change and, and move ahead. You know, to realign themselves with some of the <clears throat> factory of the future. You know, digital design and architecture um, systems that are being put in by by larger primes. There's there's probably a case for a lot more consolidation among smaller um, some tier companies. But maybe just a case that there ought to be new ones that uh, <clears throat> are are you know, basically supported by uh, by this industry and, and broader U.S. Uh, manufacturing policy, because uh, as I said, I just don't think there's a capital issue at, at the large companies. So, as a segue, uh, Byron, last week uh, you wrote uh, about that, but you know, talk to us a little bit about what the program is and what it's trying to accomplish, and and why you think it could be worthwhile. Right? I mean, a greater focus on industrial base than we've seen in a while from the department. Well, there were two things that I thought were interesting. You mentioned, you know, this Office of Strategic Capital that was announced by the Department of Defense on December 1st. Um, you know, the the initial director is uh, actually, he's the co-founder of the U.S. Air Force's um, AFV Ventures and AFWORK. You know, the goal was basically the office to get capital companies that need to bridge the so-called valley of death. But, you know, there was kind of a, an offsetting announcement to that Again, getting back to capital, where is capital going? And that's the fact that Andural raised just under $1.5 billion in a Series E funding round. That was announced December 2nd. Um, and, you know, they said the funding is going to enable a company to accelerate research and development, um, basically for autonomous defense systems, and allow it to, to kind of scale and grow its businesses. So, again, I don't think there's a capital problem as much as there is a scale problem. And that that's, I think, what DOD really ought to be focusing on. And, and it also came out in at least one of the panels that I listened to at, at uh, Reagan Defense Forum. A, a person from Google was talking about the same phenomena that you know, you really need to start providing the lanes for companies to grow. If that means breaking up programs of record, you know, thinking more about modular acquisition, you know, you need you, you need to, I don't think this, this is a capital problem as much as it is an acquisition system problem. And then another related problem, which is creating programs that allow entrants to grow, as well as also... Uh, instilling in contracting officials, you know, uh, an ability to take risk, an ability to take, to make bets on companies that don't have a long legacy of, of doing things for the Department of Defense. And those are tough challenges, but I think that's how you really get, A, more companies into the defense industrial base, and, and B, you know, thereby build a more resilient defense industrial base that's not really resting Right. Uh, in the hands of, of five or six super large primes. 
Uh, and we are now going to transition to a little bit of a lightning round to talk about some of those uh, super large uh, primes and what they're uh, producing. You were at uh, an investor day uh, at Lidos uh, down or Dynetics uh, or a Lidos company that's down in Huntsville, Alabama, uh, doing some very innovative work on hypersonics. Uh, and of course, there was also the rollout of the of the B-21 Raider bomber uh, by Northrop Grumman at Air Force's legendary Plant 42 in Palmdale. Uh, talk to us first uh, on you know, just your thoughts and key takeaways from the Lidos uh, event. Uh, and then uh, we can get your thoughts on B-21 before we uh, take a look at the week ahead. Well, I thought the most interesting takeaway from the, you know, Lidos is really considered a federal defense IT contractor, you know, a services company. They do about 10% of their sales from products. And I think that really was what this tour was, or these planned visits and management meetings were about, was Dynex is part of a goal to double that product uh, composition. And they are doing some very innovative um, program work. I think what's what's intriguing, too, is, you know, it came up kind of time and time again in, in some of the Q&A and sidebar conversations. You know, how does a company like Dynetics slash Lidos compete against, you know, Lockheed, Raytheon, Northrop Grumman? And I guess the, the fact is they have been competing successfully. You know, they Lidos won IFPIC, uh, the enduring version of, of IFPIC, which is an Army air defense program. You know, they've got the uh, the common hypersonic glide body uh, that, that is being supplied to both the Army and the Navy. So there's room um, to, to grow. Now, Dynetics has been around for a while. Uh, you know, they were purchased by Lidos in 2020, and I think Lidos has kind of given them the depth um, to, to broaden the, the scope of what they can bid on. And I think, as you know, was very much evidence on this tour, they're really building out capacity um, to meet the higher demand that's embedded in, you know, the programs that they talk about. And frankly, I believe programs that they couldn't talk about because they're classified. But it was pretty impressive. You know, it's one thing to see full factories. It's another thing to see factories that are currently empty. Um, but, you know, here's how the work's going to flow. Here's here's where it's going to come in. Here's the test um, equipment we have set up. I mean, they they're look like a pretty interesting and bright future at Dynetics. And uh, your uh, thoughts on B-21, we discussed uh, on uh, yesterday's program a little bit. I mean, anybody who's an airplane uh, guy or gal uh, is uh, very excited to see a new aircraft. Um, you know, we talked a little bit to Frank Kendall, so tune in on, on Wednesday. Um, you know, he thinks that its performance is, is where, you know, it's just about average on uh, delivery, right? Our mutual friend, Tony Capasio of Bloomberg uh, points out it's going to be another seven to eight years. So, I mean, the whole thing will have span about you know, 16 to 18 years before we get to IOC, uh, whereas the F-35 really, is, as Frank uh, Kendall points out to us on, on Wednesday, was a little bit of an outlier in terms of the longer uh, the scope of delivering that program in part because yeah, of partner. I mean, well, look, what, what I, are your takeaways, right? Because effectively, we have built a cost-constrained medium bomber. Uh, the goal of it was, hey, let's get the price point long, low enough so that we could build a lot of them, right? So this makes sense if we build 100 or 150 of them. What are some of your takeaways, um, you know, and, and, and sense, you know, even if we're excited about it, what it really means, you know, in a, in a Pacific scenario, for example? Well, it just, the, the, the simple question is, great, you rolled, you rolled this thing out. Um, it is impressive. You know, it's, it's a beautiful plane. But um, how many are you going to build? When do, you, when do you get them fielded? You know, what's the, 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 
all the other things are going to go around fielding and deploying a, an aircraft of this size. And I just think, um, you know, it can't be another B-2 bomber program. We end up buying 20 of them. Um, I don't think that's remotely going to happen. But, you know, the, the our competitors get votes too. And I think, you know, if this gets dragged out and, and you know, the procurement numbers get cut, uh, from from whatever the Air Force is planning, you know, I, I thought one thing, and I'm not terribly surprised by this or the rollout ceremony, but even at Reagan, there was really, I didn't hear of any real incremental news on um, how many, what, what's the annual procurement plan, you know, how many squadrons are you going to be able to stand up over what time period, uh, where, what are some of the other places that this can be based at? You know, does it have some of the same restraints that the F-35 or the B-2 have had when, when it's deployed? So I, I just think it, it's, an, it's an interesting milestone. It should be celebrated. But, um, but you know, the main thing is, for me, is, you know, when are you going to have 50 or 100 of these in service? And that's going to tell you, oh, you know, everybody said, oh, well, the Chinese took notice of the bomber. Well, I don't think the Chinese really care about a rollout of an airplane that now has to go through a test program. I think they're going to care a lot more when you have 50 or 100 of these, you know, based, you know, around the United States that can be deployed anywhere around the world and, and that they're showing or demonstrating that, that um, they're staying ahead of the, you know, defense-offense race. And, and uh, so I, I think the most important thing from here is, Make sure the program stays within cost, which so far, you know, to the Air Force and to Northrop Grumman and their partners' credit, it appears to be doing so. Um, but, geez, just build these things and get them fielded. Uh, there are those who uh, point out uh, the effector is the most important thing coming off of this airplane. Uh, and and one of the challenges of having a little bit more limited uh, or significantly more limited, right? I mean, a third the bomb capability, uh, if uh, what we understand is true about it, uh, does limit its ability to deliver those weapons that can also travel a long distance and, and deliver a big punch. Uh, but one of the advantages it has as a smaller airplane is that it can operate more, in a more distributed fashion from more bases causing uh, a little bit uh, of a more significant challenge and and everything that's in the skin of the airplane, both the skin, it is much more maintainable. And then uh, within it, uh, some of its electronic systems are apparently uh, nothing short of stupefying, right? Uh, and a little bit of what we've seen, both, both the F-35 capability, uh, but uh, more advanced versions of all of that. Okay, really quickly, give us a sense uh, on uh, the week ahead and what folks should be paying attention to. Well, Professional Services Council does their federal market forecast. Um, that's really more more kind of on the IT side, but I think that that's always worth uh, worth listening into. I know you mentioned Mike McCord, your interview with him. He's going to be speaking at that event as well. There are a whole bunch of events this week, Vago, on kind of different geopolitical aspects, um, not just Russia-Ukraine, but kind of look-aheads to risks in 2023. Uh, Center for New American Security is doing an event that kind of riffs off a report that they released on uh, precision weapons buys in the FY23 budget um, that, that I think will be of interest to. Um, U.S. Naval Institute is doing a program, I believe, tomorrow kind of on integrated deterrence. So there's a lot going on. We're kind of in the usual pre-holiday rush here, I think, as, as a 
lot of the think tanks uh, in particular are trying to get some events uh, under their belts before everybody really punches out for the holidays. Uh, indeed. Uh, Byron, thanks very much. Always a pleasure having you on. Thanks for the insights and look forward to having you back on again next week. Thanks so much. Oh, always a pleasure, Vago. Thank you. At the very conclusion of the Reagan Forum, we had an opportunity to talk to some of our regular participants to get their takeaways on the conference and what jumped out at them. Uh, joining us for that conversation was former Pentagon Comptroller Dr. Dov Zakheim, who is affiliated with the Center for Strategic and International Studies, Michael Herson of American Defense International, one of Washington's top defense and aerospace lobbying firms, and Dr. Kathleen McGinnis, who leads the Smart Women, Smart Power Initiative at CSIS. Here's our conversation from the slightly noisy media center at the conclusion of the Reagan Forum. Everybody, thanks so very much for joining us at the end of what was uh, another uh, terrific uh, Reagan uh, forum. Dove, I want you to start us off. You gave us a little bit of a taste around Friday's show. Uh, you know, and uh, you know, Roger and the team did a terrific job this year with uh, another great program. What were some of the things that stood out uh, in your mind? Well, there were two themes that I thought were really important. One wasn't anything they articulated, but that you could see in virtually every panel, which was the bipartisanship whether you're talking China, whether you're talking Ukraine, whether you're talking more money for defense. Adam Smith kind of said it should be spent smarter, but he didn't say less money either. Every one of them, R's or D's, thought that it was terribly important for America's security to work together. And they talked about working together. So that was truly impressive. The other thing, I think, was how they, want, like, uh, Lloyd Austin's speech at Halifax, and again today, and I might add that Lloyd Austin gave a terrific speech again. Everybody said so. But like his speech, people linked Ukraine to China in a very, very intrinsic way. And again, that's terribly important because, again, the bipartisan commitment on China and Ukraine, they linked those together. So that was critical as well. And then finally, I think just the atmosphere, whether it was industry, whether it was the military, whether it was Congress, whether it was you media types, there was a sense of common purpose. And quite frankly, we need to import that to Washington. So those are my takeaways. Um, excellent uh, points, and Leon Panetta also very passionate in the on the defense uh, the secretary's uh, panel. Michael, uh, you have a list uh, of things. Uh, anybody who knows you knows you're pretty organized when it comes to this. Uh, but what were some of the things that uh, were top of mind for you? Right, I mean, I saw you at almost every panel. You were moving around as well uh, among them. What were the things that stood out for you? There were about five things that stood out for me, but Dove uh, stole one of them. So I, I, I was also struck by the sense of bipartisanship and how bipartisanship continues to be alive and well in national security, and it needs to be. We saw some really great exchanges between Senator Rounds, who's a Republican, um, and uh, Seth Moulton, who's a Democrat. Um, we also saw some with Mike Gallagher uh, and with uh, uh, the senator from um, Illinois. Um, so I think those are, those are really important. Those are really good. I, one thing that really struck me early on was, you know, I've been coming to this event almost every year, and this event initially was dominated by the major primes, uh, you know, the Lockheeds, the Boeings, and Northrop's. And now you see this really dominated by the mid-tier, smaller companies, the innovative companies, uh, private equity firms, venture capital firms were here. And there's a recognition of that on many of the panels that we need to focus on ingenuity. We need to open up the aperture to let these companies in because they have things that are necessary for us to compete with China. 
Uh, I also think that we there's a sense, uh, a positive sense here that we will get an NDAA before the end of the year and we will get an appropriations bill. I also think there was a subtle uh, repudiation of the former commander-in-chief uh, that we saw among a lot of the panels. Talk about our important role that we play in the world, we have to be engaged. Uh, why it was a mistake not to be involved in TPP, the importance of continuing to support Ukraine, uh, the importance of democracy. Those were our very subtle repudiations of the prior administration. And I think, you know, panel after panel, uh, also China was the key, the key focus here. And there was some recognition, too, that we do things that enable China, and uh, mistakes that we make, uh, recognitions we saw in some of the panelists, both on, from the Hill and the executive branch. And, you know, part of the benefit of this event is not just the people on the panels, but the people we get to interact with. And during lunch, I sat with one of the military attaches from one of the Asian countries, who, while we were talking about what next year may look like uh, in Congress, that we could end up with long-term CRs, we could end up uh, struggling to get an NDAA, he said, you know, the Chinese look at our congressional system and they laugh at us. Uh, and that, to me, was a very strong takeaway. Um, uh, it was, and uh, it was an interesting conversation we had uh, with uh, your acquaintance. And I would point out one of the interesting things, you know, you talk about innovation. Heidi Shu's point that, you know, she looked at the audience and said, you know, all of you companies pay twice what I can afford to pay. So when we want the best and the brightest to come into government, you guys are really making this a lot harder uh, to do. And, Dove, you have a point you yes. want to add. Um, we had the, the Singapore defense minister and the Finland defense minister and a whole bunch of ambassadors. So everything that Michael just said and that I just talked about and that I'm sure Kathleen's gonna talk about, that was a message to both our Asian allies and our European friends and allies that we are serious and that there, whatever else is going on in this country in terms of divisions, when it comes to national security and it comes to allies and friends, and everybody used that phrase, allies and partners, that was really important for those people to hear. Uh, absolutely, and Kathleen, so I wanna get your takeaways, especially on allies and partners. Well, what I thought was interesting with the Singaporean defense minister, when he was speaking, he was talking about U.S. positioning and how Singapore will support more military forces and uh, U.S. military forces in, in DePACOM. But he said that, you know, just having the military there isn't sufficient, right? There has to be economic agreements. There has to be a message. There has to be um, another underlying rationale for U.S. engagement there, or it's just not going to resonate in the long term. And so I thought that was a really powerful call to think much more broadly about U.S. strategy in Indo-PACOM. And let's, let's think about how the economic dimensions and the political dimensions fit into this. Um, it's, it's not just throwing more forces into the region. It's a, it's a much bigger picture. Um, I, I also think it's a powerful symbol when you see the Indo-Pacific commander, Lung Aquilino, here uh, year after year showing, uh, showing the flag. Uh, By the way, they had a video of the big exercise and you saw the aircraft carrier with the Canadian frigates and the Japanese frigates and the Australian frigates and this powerful massed force. And this coming on top of the B-21 unveiling yesterday was a real message to China. Don't start with us as quickly as you think you might be able to. 
Uh, and uh, Admiral Aquilino with uh, reporters. And, and what the, the cheering you're hearing in the background is that the, the folks who've been running this media center nonstop for the last 20, you know, 36 hours are, are, are jubilant at the fact that, uh, that they, didn't have, they don't have to deal with as many reporters. Uh, so there's wine uh, between the last couple of comments here for, for all of us. Uh, but I mean, one of the points that Admiral Aquilino made uh, was to say it's about allies and partners, about working uh, together, and also noted uh, that the Chinese and the Russians are working more closely. And just a couple of days ago, uh, there was a combined uh, air exercise with them in the in the Sea of Japan. Go ahead, Catherine. Um, looking forward, what everybody's been talking about allies and partners, but most administrations do. They talk about allies and partners as force multipliers. They're key to American strategic success. I'm looking forward to seeing exactly how are we going to implement this? Are we actually going to listen to our allies and partners' perspectives and integrate them into our strategies? Or are we just going to keep doing the same things over and over again? Well, I mean, I have to say Admiral Aquilino, again, deserves credit because he is trying to bring a command and control system that brings all our allies and partners mm -hmm. so that we have a common regional picture, which is going to be an order of magnitude, um, um, quantum leap in our ability to coordinate, especially with our closest allies and partners. Speakers pointed out the importance of technology transfer. Mm -hmm. And it's clear that something's going to have to be done about that. If we really want to work closely with our partners and our friends and allies, we've got it. It's not just all invented here. Yeah. Uh, well, exactly. I mean, a lot of our friends have uh, good ideas. Do you want to add anything to this? I, mean, given I, I think that's a, a very strong point because it's a point that the military attache from Asia Pacific region mentioned during our lunch among our small group that we talk a lot about allies and partners, uh, but it's usually a one-way street. Uh, that we're not very good about sharing uh, information that's uh, necessary to our allies and partners in the region. Um, I want to ask uh, this year's honoree, uh, every year it's always a defense uh, luminary and uh, there was a remembrance for uh, Ash Carter who was uh, one of the recipients uh, of this great organization's annual Freedom Award. Um, this year was John Jay uh, Hamry, somebody that all of us have had a very long time relationship with. I have to say he was one of the first people I called on my first day as a reporter because uh, people were like, you're going to have to know this John Hamry guy who's on the Senate Armed Services Committee. Uh, and since then, um, he is uh, one of the people I've most admired in Washington throughout my career as being actually a moral good man who's always trying to do uh, the right thing, just like a couple of other people I know who might or might not be on this podcast on a regular basis uh, and, and women. Um, Kathleen, start us off, right? You, you lead smart uh, women, smart power. Uh, you work for uh, John Hamry, and I want to quickly go around the horn uh, for John Hamry's stories because I think there are more stories than we have time to tell them and why he, he is somebody very fitting uh, to be uh, the recipient of this award. You know, it was just wonderful to see him honored today. Um, as a CSISer, it just made me so proud. And um, he... He's been such an important mentor. He was the one who put me into the Pentagon. He's the one who sort of spotted me in CSIS and said, you know, you can do this. You can move forward. And he's just been, the, the, the mentorship that he's given to this community is something that, that, I mean, it brings tears to your eyes. How many people he's helped, how many people he, and he, he cares for the individual. And he's brought that to CSIS. You know, he's, he's made it an institution that cares about its people. And 
as a result, we can come up with some really interesting policy solutions to hard problems. He's an amazing leader, and I'm so glad that he was honored today. Um, and I have to say that uh, he's even mentored some reporters along the way and made them better at, at what they do. Uh, you have a very long relationship with John Hamry right after he was fresh out of Harvard Divinity School, right? Right. right. John, I've known John 45 years. And I tell this to people, and I've actually told it to his face. John Hamry is a saint. There are very few people in Washington about whom only good things are said. John's one of them. So I will tell a quick story. There was an editorial that I, I was out of government at the time. There was an editorial that I saw in the Washington Post about how the Army had canceled a program which gave blankets to the homeless. And the Post praised whoever it was at DOD who had overruled the Army. So I went to John's office. He was Deputy Secretary of Defense. And of course, it was John who had done it. John works at, at food kitchens. John is a truly religious man. Uh, uh, and you saw it. Those who were here tonight saw that. Mark Esper gave a terrific talk about his relationship with Ronald Reagan and how Reagan inspired him. John Henry talked about God. Uh, and we can't forget, as you said, uh, Dove, about uh, Mark Esper, who is also one of the other honorees, somebody who I think was as qualified as any man who's ever held the job of defense uh, secretary. And uh, Michael, you, you've known Mark for literally decades as well uh, from his, uh, you know, government service, industry service. You know, what, what, do you, what do you think characterizes Mark Esper? Um, well, you know, we always describe Mark Esper as a Boy Scout. Uh, and, uh, you know, because Mark always wants to do the right thing. Uh, and Mark's a hard worker, and Mark's very loyal to his team and very loyal to his country. And, uh, you know, I, actually Mark was a client for a while when he was at Raytheon, and it, Mark always knew what he knew and knew what he didn't know. And, you know, Mark had great opportunity to be Secretary of the Army and Secretary of Defense at a very, I think, dark time in American political history. And he did it because it was in the best interest of the country, and he stopped a lot of bad things from happening, and he withstood the slings and arrows, not only during his time there, but during the time after he left the Pentagon. And I have a lot of respect for Mark because he showed a great deal of courage. And let me go around the horn as well, because all of you have had experience with Mark. I've had, I have had the honor and pleasure of knowing him for decades uh, as well. Uh, Dove? Well, as you know, uh, Mark was a regular at the Reagan conference from the very first one. And um, I, think, I think, frankly, uh, Michael summed it up as well as anybody could. You look at Mark's record, it's all about serving this country. Um, from when he decided at the age of 17, which he talked about tonight, that he was, you know, Reagan inspired him. He was going to join, join up, goes to West Point, and the rest is history. But it's, it's ultimately, and in this respect, he and John Hamry are the same. It's the decency of the man. And what he resisted under the previous administration, not everybody could have done that. And people are only beginning to recognize now how heroic he was. Kathleen? I've never worked with him. I've never, um, I've, I've, I've never had that privilege, but from afar, I, I, it just the, the courage that he showed during that administration, um, the priority he placed on civilian control of the armed forces and keeping the ship steady um, is incredible. And I, I'm very grateful that he served at that time. And I'm very grateful he was given the award today. Guys, thanks so very much. It's always an honor and pleasure having you on. Now let's go and get some wine and look forward to having you all back on again real soon. Thanks very much. Thank, thank you. Thanks. Thank you very much.